0: Well, we're going to have to dig right in this morning. I've got a lot of ground to cover, and I know it's warm, uh, so I was going to say you may feel like I'm fire hosing you with all of this information, but you may appreciate that So, uh, as it warms up this summer. But try to turn to Luke chapter 9 uh, and get there quickly. Again, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, a lot of information. The good news is this should be recorded. It should be available later in the week if you want to go back and... And listen more in depth than what you may be able to, to uh, take in this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 45. And in these verses, there seem to be two very unrelated stories. In Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 45, two very unrelated stories. There's the transfiguration, the record of the transfiguration of Jesus. And then there's a record of Jesus casting out a demon from a boy that his disciples could not cast out. But in both of these stories, as different as they are, in both of these stories, there's one command, and I want us to spend most of our time looking at that command together this morning. So let's walk through these stories together and get to the thing that ties them together, which is the command that we see in both of those stories. The first thing is in verses 28 to 36. We see an epiphany. We'll call it an epiphany because the word epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphania and it means a manifestation or a striking experience. So what Peter, James, and John are about to see and experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was clearly a manifestation. It was a manifestation of Christ's glory. It was was clearly a striking appearance to behold. So we have here an epiphania, so to speak, an epiphany beginning in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, now notice, who's doing the praying? Jesus is the one praying. Jesus is on the mountain praying. And what are his disciples doing while he's praying? We'll find out in just a moment that they're doing what they will be found doing later on in the garden when Jesus is praying, they're sound asleep. Verse 29, while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. Now the disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying. And they are missing it. The, the, Jesus' appearance is becoming different. His face is becoming different. His clothing is becoming different. It's white and gleaming. And verse 30 says, Behold. That word behold means to stop. It means to look. It means there's something wonderful here to behold. Behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, so imagine this scene on the mount. Peter, James, and John are asleep. Jesus is praying. All of a sudden, Jesus Jesus's form completely changes to one of absolute glory, and Moses and Elijah are standing there with him. And it says in verse thirty-one that they were appearing in glory, and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about, about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions have been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. They woke up from their slumber and they saw His glory. In the words of John in John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw His glory and they saw the two men who were with Him, Moses and Elijah. Now Moses represented the entire law of God. To say the law of God was to say Moses. To say Moses made them think of the law of God. So here we have Moses representing the law of God, standing here with the Son of God. And we have Elijah. Elijah represented the prophets of God. So when you thought of the prophets, you thought of Elijah. When you thought of Elijah, you thought of all the prophets. So here Jesus is standing with those who represent the law, the one who represents the prophets, and Jesus is standing in their midst, coming to fulfill both the law and the prophets, and he did. Verse 33, as they were leaving him, uh, Moses and Elijah are leaving him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying, which is pretty normal for Peter, right? And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. There's an epiphany. Not only is there an epiphany, but we see in the next story an exorcism. Verses 37 to 45. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and Only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it does. Now imagine this man, his only little child, his only little boy. And out of nowhere, his son would begin to scream and he would begin to convulse and foam at the mouth. And and this demon, when it would leave him, it would throw him to the ground and maul him. And he says in verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. He'd heard of these disciples. He'd heard that Jesus had called them to Himself. He had heard that Jesus had empowered them with power over the demons and over disease. He had heard that Jesus had sent them out and it caused quite a stir, so He brought His Son to them thinking they could help Him and they could do nothing. Now here's this man in a state of hopelessness, a state of helplessness, and Jesus shows up. There's no doubt He runs to Jesus. Jesus Answered him in verse 41 and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, this is interesting, Jesus hasn't even spoken to the son. He's not even seen the son. He's not even touched the son. But even as they're approaching, as he's making his way to Jesus, while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into convulsion But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. But while everyone, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God in verse 43, but while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. There's two very different stories. There's an epiphany, Jesus showing His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's an exorcism, Jesus casting a demon out of a little boy that His disciples could not. But there is, in both of these stories, one common command. And that's where I want us to spend most of our time. Not in, in analyzing the epiphany, not in analyzing the exorcism, but analyzing the exhortation from God the Father and from Jesus Himself. Look in verses 35 and 36 as Moses and Elijah are being carried away from this scene that Peter, James, and John have witnessed. A cloud engulfs, it implies it engulfs Peter, James, and John in response to Peter's, hey, let's build three tabernacles. And the voice in verse 35, out of the cloud said, this is my Son, my Chosen One, Listen to him. Now there's your command. There's your exhortation in story one. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Jesus was found alone. Now notice this. The cloud has surrounded them. Moses and Elijah are being removed. And when the cloud lifts... Jesus is left there alone, and a voice has just told them, this is my son, this is my chosen one, listen to him. And what I believe the Father is affirming for Peter, James, and John is that the law, Moses, has been perfectly kept. The prophets, Elijah, have been perfectly fulfilled. And the one to perfectly keep the law and to perfectly fulfill the prophets is none other than my son, my chosen one. So listen to what he says. Put your ear to the word of God and listen for the voice of Christ in all that you read. Whether it's the law, whether it's the prophets, whether it's the gospel, whether it's the letters, listen to the voice of Christ. Listen to Jesus. Now in the second story, we have the exhortation. It's found in verse 44. In verse 44, Jesus says, Let these words sink into your ears. There's a command. Let these words sink into your ears. So the Father says, This is my Son. Listen to Him. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. It's the same exact command in both of the stories. And the command is simple. Listen to what Jesus says. And what does Jesus say? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That was the furthest thing from Peter, James, and John's mind after the transfiguration happened. That was the furthest thing from the minds of the disciples. They thought Jesus was going to set up His kingdom upon earth. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to set up His throne in the temple. And He was going to rule forevermore. And Jerusalem would be the city of God. And Israel would be the people of God. And they would all live happily ever after. But Jesus says, open up your ears and let me plant this gospel seed for you that you can't swallow yet but that's gonna come to fruition I'm gonna be delivered over to sinful men and in that he's implying I'm gonna be delivered over to sinful men I'm gonna be crucified and I'm gonna be buried and in other places he reminds them that he will rise again so here's our command here's our exhortation that I want us to meditate on this morning listen to Christ. Let his words, gospel words, sink into your ears. Now, how are we supposed to listen to Christ? That's the question that we need to answer. How are we supposed to listen to Christ? If the command is listen to Christ, how are we supposed to listen to Him? Is He going to speak audibly to us? Is He going to come to us in a dream or in a vision? Are we going to get a feeling inside? Like how do we listen to Jesus? How do we hear from Jesus? And the primary guaranteed way that we hear from Jesus and that we listen to Jesus is in the Word of God. Now, why? Here's the, here's the question that all other questions go back to. Why should we trust, listen to, and believe the Bible, the Word of God, as the voice of Christ? And you think, if we, if we can't answer that question, if we can't be convinced of that truth, then everything else we believe gets out of order because everything we believe goes back to the Scriptures. And if we can't believe the Scriptures... If we can't be convinced that the Scriptures are the Word of Christ and the Word of God, everything else falls apart, so why? Why not the Koran? Why not the Book of Mormon? Why not those watchtowers that the Jehovah's false witnesses stick into your doors? Or their New World mistranslation of the Bible that they want to push upon you and convince you is true? I mean, why not Karl Marx? Why not Darwin? Why not Stephen Hawking? Why the Bible of all books? I want us to look at two passages of Scripture. And I want you to put a marker there where you can go back and forth. I, I'm going to try not to give you whiplash. But I want you to turn to 2 Peter, uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 16 to 21. And I want you to go to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, because what I want to do this morning on the heels of seeing the epiphany and seeing the exorcism is drive home the exhortation that we need to listen to Christ and the way that we listen to Christ is through His Word and we can believe that Word and we can rely on that Word and we can trust that Word. That's what I want to do. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 16 to 21 and, and find Luke 1 and put a marker there because we're going to go back and forth. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter tells us why we can believe the Word of God. Now some of you, some of you people out there may be thinking, well, if you, if you are telling me to believe the Word of God by using the Word of God, it doesn't really help any because you're using something. To convince me of something, that that something's true. Here's my philosophy. We don't need to defend the Bible. We don't need to defend the Bible. I think C.H. Spurgeon said the, the the Bible's like a lion. I don't need to defend a lion, I just turn it loose. And the Bible's like a lion, I don't need to defend it. We just turn it loose. Let the Spirit of God do His work. And what does the Bible say? If you just open your ears and and listen to what the Bible says, I think we'll see that it can be trusted as the Word of God, the Word of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. We'll try to walk through this quickly. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to see. Peter is saying up front, These are not tales. These are not fairy tales. These are not Disney stories. Now, the Koran, the Book of Mormon, the Watchtower, Marx, Darwin, hawking these books are tales. Some of them more cleverly devised than other tales. But the Bible is not a tale. And it's not even a cleverly devised tale. It is the Word of God. And here's why we can believe it's the Word of God. Because the Bible is a collection. It's a collection of books. I think that's something we forget. It's something we were reminded of as we, as we tried to share the gospel with Muslims. They think of the Koran as Quran a book, and they think of the Bible as a book. The Bible's not a book. The Bible is a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 books, as a matter of fact. And the most amazing thing about this collection of books is that they were written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors who wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. They wrote on three separate continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And yet these 66 books all come together to tell one story of the person of Jesus Christ and how He came to this earth to redeem us as a people for Himself. This is not one book. This is 66 books, a collection of books. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us in verse number one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile account of these things accomplished among us. This is a collection that many had undertaken to write about. This was not an isolated event. This was not an isolated story. This was a popular subject and many wrote down their experiences. Those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Those are historical details that can be verified or or thrown out in a court of law. In Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. And his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Idumea and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. He goes on and on with these details, historical details, to show us that the Bible is not a collection of fairy tales and stories, but it's a collection of historical documents. Now here's what some of you, we celebrated graduates a couple of weeks ago. Here's what some of you graduates are going to do. You're going to go off to, to the university and some... Some pompous professor is going to walk into the room and he's going to say this. You write it down, you mark it down, and you watch. He's going to walk into the room and he's going to say, you can't trust the Bible because think of all the translations of the Bible that have been given to us over the centuries. Now, you know, that would be a problem if the English Standard Version had been translated from the New International Version and the New International Version have been translated from the New American Standard Bible. And the New American Standard Bible was translated from the New King James. And the New King James was translated from the King James. And the King James was translated from the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was translated from the Tyndale Bible. And the Tyndale Bible was translated from the Latin Bible. And the Latin Bible, you see where I'm going? That would be a problem. But what every single professor in every university knows is that's not how the Bible was translated. The Bible was translated, whether it's the ESV, the NASB, the King James, the New King James, from the manuscripts. They all go back to the manuscripts. So for a professor to take a young, impressionable mind in a college classroom and say, you can't trust the Bible, because after all, there's so many translations, is it proves, number one, that that professor, regardless of his PhD, is ignorant and therefore should not be allowed to teach... Or worse, he's evil and he wants to lie to impressionable students and make them think the Bible's not true. The scriptures come from the manuscripts. The Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts are not fairy tales, they're a collection of historical documents translated from the manuscripts. And what does that mean? It means that if you look at the manuscripts the Bible comes from, our English Bible comes from, we have 6,000 portions of manuscripts of the New Testament. 6,000 portions of manuscripts of the New Testament. We have roughly 20,000 portions of manuscripts from the New and the Old. And what does that mean? That means that these same professors that will tell you that the Bible is not trustworthy will cause you and command you to read and write on Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. And what they won't tell you is that we have less than a dozen Copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. They'll want you to read Aristotle's poetics, won't they? But what they won't tell you is that there's less than 10 copies of Aristotle's poetics that they pull from. Less than 10 copies. Well, you know those manuscripts, they're not the ones that Peter actually wrote. They're not the ones that Paul actually wrote. When were those manuscripts that we translate from? When were they written? Well, the earliest thing we have is A.D. 120. Which is about two, three, maybe a few more decades, depending on your timeline. From the original manuscripts. That sounds bad. Until you realize that Caesar and his Gallic Wars, those manuscripts are a thousand years after the original. We trust those just fine. Aristotle's Poetics, 1,400 years after the originals, but we trust those just fine. Homer's Iliad, over 2,100 years after the originals. Two to three decades doesn't sound too bad, does it? Get this, we could take all those manuscripts and we could set them on fire right now. Every New Testament manuscript, all 6,000 of them, we could set them on fire throw them in the trash can, and we could take the early church fathers and their writings and we could reconstruct 98% of the entire New Testament from the writings of the early church fathers. This means that we can take the writings of the early church fathers and we can take our 6,000 portions of manuscripts of the New Testament and 20,000 portions of the manuscripts of the Old Testament and the New Testament and we can put them all together and we can see That they all line up with one another with very, very small variations that are meaningless. And we haven't even discussed how the Dead Sea Scroll discovery in the 1940s verifies the Old Testament Scriptures that were written down and hidden before Jesus came on the scene. We have a collection of historical documents. But there's more. These collection of historical documents were given to us by eyewitnesses. Look back in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. The latter part of verse 16, Peter goes on and says, But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. I think, I think Peter's thinking back to that transfiguration. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. These accounts were not written by historians. These accounts were not written primarily by researchers and professors. They were given to us by primarily eyewitnesses. 1 John 1, 1 1-3 says, What was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaimed to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He has given to us what they've seen and heard and touched and experienced. This is a collection of historical documents given to us primarily by eyewitnesses. And Luke affirms this back in Luke chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. What motive would these eyewitnesses have to lie about their story? Not money, because none of them got rich. Not material possessions. Not promotions in society. Not popularity. The only thing their testimonies provided them was suffering and death. The only motive they had to stand by these stories that they wrote down for us was that these stories are true. We have a collection of historical documents given to us by eyewitnesses, but it even goes further than that. They weren't only given to us by by eyewitnesses, but they were given to us by eyewitnesses who wrote and testified during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defines the gospel. He says the gospel message is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose from the dead according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by many. And he said, there's still some of 500 brethren that saw him. Some of these 500 brethren are still alive. Reading Paul's letter. Reading the Gospels. Do you know how quick it would take for one of those eyewitnesses to come forward and say, yeah, we really didn't see that. He said we did, but we didn't. He said it was true, but it's not. These things were written for us by eyewitnesses who wrote during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. But there's more. We have a collection of historical documents that that were given to us by eyewitnesses who testified during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And these documents contain specific, predictive prophecies that have clearly been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the prophetic word made more sure. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Luke chapter 1, and verse 1 says, these things were accomplished among us. What does it mean that they were accomplished among us? They didn't just happen. These things were foreseen and forepromised events that have now come to pass and they have been accomplished. Listen to me. The Bible is the only book of religion on planet earth that contains specific predictive prophecies and the actual fulfillment of those prophecies. Consider all of the Old Testament prophecies related to Jesus. The place of His birth the time of His birth, the manner of His birth, the circumstances surrounding His birth. We have accounts of His betrayal for 30 silver coins. We have an account of the manner of His death and how it would happen. And the fact that He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Some sources say that more than 400 Old Testament prophecies point to Christ and to his life. Let me give you this one last quote and we'll wrap it up really quickly. Peter Stoner in his book, and I've used this before, so you may be familiar with it. It may remind you. But Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks and this is what he wrote. We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies, just eight, is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. 1 in 10 to the 17th power is 1 in 100 quadrillion. That's a 1 followed by 17 zeros larger than our national debt. In order to help us comprehend this staggering possibility, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take 10 to the 17th power, 100 quadrillion silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. Those 100 quadrillion silver dollars would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, if we blindfolded a man and turned him loose in the state of Texas to walk through all of those silver dollars and challenged him to reach down and pick up one of those silver dollars that we had marked, just one silver dollar that we had marked, the chances that he would find our marked silver dollar out of those 100 quadrillion silver dollars... It's the same chance that one man would have lived down to the present and fulfilled just eight Old Testament prophecies. And there are some estimates of 400 Old Testament prophecies, every one that Jesus fulfilled. The command we have from Scripture today is to listen to Christ. Listen to His Word. Why should we listen to this above all other books? Why should we listen to this above all other religions? It's because we have a collection of books that are historical in nature, that were written by eyewitnesses, that, were tes- that, that testified during the lifetime of even other eyewitnesses. And these historical records record specific predictive prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled. Listen to His Word. Second Peter 1, verse 20 and 21 wraps, wraps it up nicely. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Listen to His words. And what were His words? Even in our text today, He said, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Listen, Jesus Christ came to this earth to live the perfect, righteous, holy life that God requires of each of us. And He went to the cross to take upon Himself Our sins, our failures, our iniquities, our transgressions. He paid that sin debt in full. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on Sunday morning, He rose from the dead, triumphant, victorious over death, over hell, and over the grave. And He reigns forevermore so that... Every person under the sound of my voice who would listen to the words of Christ and let them sink deep into His ears could turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be transformed by the power of His gospel. Revelation ends and it says over and over, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. That's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Listen to Him. Would you come to Christ? Would you believe in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your gospel message. We thank you for the words of Jesus recorded for us. Carefully historically preserved by the sovereign protection of your spirit through the centuries. And we thank you for giving us access to that word. And I pray that we've heard it that we'll listen to it this morning. And if there's one here who doesn't know you, that they would turn from their sin, they would put their trust and their faith in you, and that they would follow you as we're about to see these others that have done that very thing in just a moment. Help us to celebrate with them. And if we don't know Christ, help us to turn to Him today and follow Him. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.